The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. This is one of my favorite topics, imperfection. I think probably because I had such a misunderstanding of Buddhism when I started. I thought Buddhism was about perfection. This is the way I thought it was. You started out like kind of like here, and you just headed up towards heaven. <laughs> and at the end of your spiritual life, you transcended. I understand some of the ancients did do that. For example, Shantideva, there's a mythology that at the end of his speaking, he just levitated and disappeared. So that's how I thought it was going to be. And lo and behold, after 30, 35 years of practicing, I've really discovered it's not like that at all. So I like to talk about how come, how why isn't it like that? Like my idea of what should happen. My idea of what should happen uh, in spirituality. So I took this sentence, losing our balance with the background of perfect harmony from Suzuki Roshi, who was a very famous Zen teacher in California. And I think how I'll start is just reading the paragraph and then see what melody comes out of uh, this paragraph tonight. So to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being moment after moment. When we lose our balance, we die. But the, at the same time, we also develop ourselves, we grow. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it is out of balance, but its background is always in perfect harmony. This is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature losing its balance against a background of perfect balance. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. So in Zen, sometimes we emphasize the imbalance or the disorder of life. I laugh because that's not what people think about Zen, is it? Uh, usually people think of Zen as um, these very perfect forms that you try to adhere to, like, you know, uh, your fingertips come opposite your nose. Uh, and they think of Zen as very ordered, actually, because uh, the Japanese tradition has a lot of order in it. And so you come to Sushin, and it looks like you're trying to be perfect with your, you know, this, you do everything exactly right. So it's very interesting for me to hear uh, someone I deeply respect say, we emphasize the imbalance or the disorder of life. So I'd like to speak about that. It's not on. No, it's not. We'll just move it a little closer to you. It's an intimidating mic, don't you think? Okay. So we're going to talk about the imbalance or the disorder of life. I also think that's interesting because just language-wise, when I first started doing spiritual work, I wanted not imbalance and disorder. What I came to spiritual life for was I wanted to be grounded, we use that word, centered, not out of balance, 
um, feelings of inner security and feelings of peace. Those were my kind of words when I first started. So what does it mean that they're not using those words, grounded, secure, and peaceful? Um, so when we lose our balance, we die. There's a joke. I'm very aware I'm at a Vipassana place. <laughs> and uh, in, they always joke about Zen, that a good Zen talk has death and dung <laughs> in it. So I'm going to spare you the dung. But we are going to talk about the death part, just because it's in here. Uh, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. So I think when I first started my spiritual life, I didn't understand that sentence, die, my small self dies moment to moment. I didn't understand the reality of time in Buddhism. There's a quite a different sense of time. We think of time as uh, or, our ordinary mind thinks of time as a line that goes through something and there's a past, a present, and a future. But the more I study Buddhism, they deconstruct. Buddhism is a lot about deconstructing the way we think or the way we perceive. Because we, as a species, perceive in a certain way and then we have a cultural agreement that that is true. That life is solid. That there's a lifespan. That we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, that we're a self. There's a lot of these ideas that we have an agreement about. And that agreement that we have produces samsara, produces our suffering. So in order to see life from a different view, you have to deconstruct your old ideas about it. So deconstructing means for me that I lose my sense of knowing what's happening. I let go of my sense of knowing of thinking that I understand through my frontal lobe what is happening. And then we sometimes call this don't know mind. And I've become very um, willing and happy to try and have a don't know mind. Because when I don't do that, when I have a mind that is um, always projecting and thinking that it knows and can control what's going to happen, when I work from that mind, I always suffer. So deconstructing my sense of time and my sense of story, stories, you deconstruct this concept that you build up. You build up great ideas and great worlds. But actually those worlds are just in our minds of the future or the past. And when we actually have direct experience of the present, we have to let those go so that we can enter into the present moment. And what Suzuki Roshi is saying here, when you enter into the present moment, especially if you're meditating, if you've slowed down enough to see you can begin to see the impermanence of life that all the Buddhists talk about. That things are constantly changing and that birthing and dying is happening 
very, very minutely all the time. That's the truth about it. Now, that's not the truth that we uh, live in, swim in, in our ordinary life. But it is the truth when you dip down. And even the physicists now will agree with us, agree with the Buddhists, um, that there isn't any solid particle. They used to think, you know, that the nucleus and the <coughs> electrons were actually solid. And they got these bigger microscopes. Now they go in there and they can't find a solid thing. What they find is space, which is what the Buddhists have been saying for years. And there's a joke. This is when I feel like it's nice to be at a different center. I can tell all my old jokes. <laughs> Katagiri had a great joke during one of our sessions long ago, one of our retreats. He said, work harder. The physicists are catching up to us. <laughs> So, if you start to really look at impermanence the way the Buddha suggested, you begin to lose your balance because we make our balance from solidifying things, right? If everything's in the right place or if things are solid, I know who I am, I know where I am, and then I feel safe enough to say I'm at peace and we construct it so that we can say that. But it's actually not what is actually happening, and it isn't what Buddha was talking about. So I had to learn that the hard way by years and years and years of trying to make spirituality one way and then discovering that it's another way. It's like meditating. Like when you first start meditating, you think, oh, I'm going to meditate and I'll get up and I'll feel relaxed and renewed and calm. Then you start meditating for a while and why doesn't that happen? You know, sometimes it happens, but sometimes I sit down and I realize I'm really angry. Or I sit down and my legs hurt and I can't calm down or other things happen. So it's not the way you think it's going to be. It's its own it's its own thing that you discover by doing. So, I'm trying to say if you study impermanence and you begin to feel impermanent, you uh, start to feel insecure or uncomfortable. Sometimes we say out of balance. And then you say, perhaps you say, I don't think this is working. I don't feel good. I don't feel peaceful. So when I'm trying to give a pep talk for is to view our spiritual life from a different lens that says this letting go that we have to do of our ideas and the way things should be and the way we want to construct our life. That as we let that go, we have to feel com more comfortable with uncomfortable. We have to feel more comfortable with insecurity, more comfortable with the mm, queasy, energetic life that you feel when you're directly feeling the present moment. And I think that there's freedom in that because I begin to let go of the stories about my life. The stories about my life are what uh, put me in bondage. Let me see if I have a quote about that. Um, 
The way should be fluid and free-flowing. When the mind does not dwell on things, grasp at things, then the way is fluid. If the mind dwells on things, that is called self-binding. So this has to do that there's a conjunction here of um, when I'm able to live in this more fluid, insecure, unbalanced place that is very able to react to what's actually currently arising without too many concepts of how it should be, I'm not grasping onto anything. I'm kind of in a fluid, uh, fluid place. And the minute I feel I have to make this more secure, I have to have an identity, a self-identity. I have to know what I'm doing and know what others, who others are. That's the self-binding. We do it to ourselves, bind ourselves up. I, I feel like a, a mummy you know, or a cocoon that we wrap ourselves up. So Katagiri Roshi used to say, you're inherently a Buddha. You are inherently a radiant being. And then our ideas and our stories are the thing that wrap us up. And when we're a radiant being, we really get interdependence. Because everybody is. It's not just me, my ego, that I'm big up here and you guys are small. And it's not, um, it's not I and thou. If you really get your radiance and everyone's radiant, then there's a real um, interconnection. But the minute I start with my stories about things, I notice that I am separating myself. I'm separate. I'm binding myself up. And then there's a great distance between you and I. And then all my fears arise, my alienation arise, a lot of insecurity arises when I don't feel trusting in the interdependence. And I think that's what he means by the background of perfect harmony. So the background of perfect harmony, I'm into this, I'm into what is trust in Buddhism and in order to let go, I need to feel that I can trust something. Otherwise I don't let go. I, I, I keep my mind keeps saying, you can't let go because something this is going to happen and that is going to happen. So you keep your idea and you persevere with your idea. But if I understand the background of perfect peace and harmony, then I can let go and I feel okay being out of balance or okay being um, uh, fluid. So in order to understand, <coughs> Katagiri Roshi used to say that the world is peace and harmony. It is universally peaceful and harmonious. And then, you know, you read the paper and you say, how could that possibly be true? Look at what the world is. So in order, in Buddhism, in order to understand peace and harmony, you have to have an enormous perspective, a huge, a universal perspective. If you have a universal perspective, you can begin to get peace and harmony. And what I use often is, uh, for me, astronomy will sometimes get it to me that it's working. The mystery of being is working, you know, when I get that far out. Or I can go in my body and say, wow, the mystery of being is working perfectly, peaceful and harmoniously in my body. Nervous system, blood, pumping, lungs. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And then you get sick and you get better. What is that? Healing. So 
if you get your mind, this is what they would call the big mind, if you get your big mind large enough, you have a background of peace. Or you have a feeling that there is harmony going on. If your perspective is large enough, you can trust the invisible forces. I like to call them invisible forces. Things that I don't perceive but are going on. The interdependence that I don't always perceive but that is going on whether I perceive it or not. So when I have this trust in the larger perspective, I then I can let go and feel this impermanence or imbalance in my life and not have to cling on to anything because I, I trust that the universe is working in peace and harmony. Sometimes in Buddhism we say, where do we take refuge? Right? The refuges. In Buddha, in Dharma, and in Sangha. Now, those don't imply, for me, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, don't imply that I'm in control or feeling secure or know what's happening. They actually imply, for me, the opposite, that I trust my Buddha nature, that I trust the mystery of being, I trust the invisible forces, that, uh, I trust the teaching, the teaching that says everything is impermanent, don't cling. It's okay, you don't have to cling, right? That's what it teaches us. In fact, clinging is what is causing your suffering. But we don't get that unless we start trying it because all we know is clinging. Right? All we know is the misperception. So, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. Sangha is interesting too, taking refuge in the Sangha. That's What's hard for me is so hard for me, actually. It uh, depends on if you're an introvert or an extrovert, if you've had great relationships in the past or bad relationships in the past, whether you trust in the Sangha. But more and more I'm saying that the group wisdom, I can trust in the group wisdom. And... Um, I can let go of my fears, my fears of people. If you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, Everything appears to be in the form of suffering. If you don't have this universal perspective, this large perspective, big mind, Buddha nature, that you're, you and everything are radiant beings, then how we perceive the world through our small minds, what you perceive is the suffering of samsara. So this next sentence is really interesting. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. So this is a matter of bothness, bothness, that and imperfection. This is the spirituality of imperfection. Let's see if I can hook these up. I used to think that my spirituality would get me away from suffering. And that's what Buddha said, right? He did say, I came here to get people out of suffering. So I took that very literally, like, 
I would not be suffer anymore. Uh, and of course, he also said, there's no escape from old age illness and death. So how do those reconcile? How, how do you work with those two ideas? And now I see you realize that suffering itself is how we live. Let me see if I can work on this. How we live. As a Buddhist, how you live is your relationship with what's occurring right now. And if you live in that way, you have to have um, the largesse to take what the present moment is. This is starting to work with the idea of Buddhism as being a non-duality, non-dual religion. So in the present moment, sometimes it's pleasurable and sometimes it's painful. And yeah, those are the opposites. Sometimes you get something, sometimes you lose something. Sometimes you are successful, sometimes you fail. Those are all encompassed in the present moment. And how we receive them is how we live. So what is actually occurring in your life, the suffering, the uh, shape of your life, that is actually the gateway for practice. That is the practice. That is how we live. How we deal with the ordinary stories of our life. So you have to deal with your karma, your stories. But the way you deal with them is um, by doing it in the present moment. So you actually have to let go of your stories in order to do it in the present moment. Am I making any sense? This is really hard to talk about. Let's see if this helps me out here. If you open to understanding the teaching of immediacy, so that's what Zen calls it, the teaching of immediacy, that you're right in the present moment. You do not cultivate practice cultivate a grasping externals. So our stories are the externals, right? If I could get this, if, if that didn't happen, all the story of our life that's out here. You don't, you don't grasp after that. You simply activate accurate perception at all times in your own mind. So afflictions and passions can never influence you. So how does that work with what we're saying? The externals are the story. But they don't go away. You don't annihilate them. You work with them with your accurate perception immediacy and what's really happening. So you need two things to do that. These are uh, shamatha vipassana or concentration and knowing what's going on. So you have to have concentration in order to be able to stay in the present moment. Right? That, that requires some training of the mind. So you can Stay with what's happening, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. And you have to understand all the story around it, the karma story around it, so that you can know how to react appropriately. You have to have an understanding of what is going on. And that understanding has a lot of different... Um, ways you can get to the understanding. Uh, you can mm 
And I'm trying to talk about that spirituality is a path. It's the path of what's happening right now for you in your life. And how you deal with your path is it. There's no destination. There's no end. There's no, I've got it. Or this is perfect. Now I'm perfect. It is actually how you move through your life. That's all it is. And you have to move through it in a certain way, which is you have to be there. You have to show up for the moment. This is being concentrated, able to stay with what's actually happening. And the other is an understanding of what is going on. And that understanding includes your vows, the vows you make uh, about your spiritual life, what your intention is. That informs the moment, right? What your spiritual intention is comes in and helps you. What's suitable? What's appropriate? What's actually happening now so that I respond well? Anything that's happening is meditation as far as I'm concerned. Anything that's going on in your life is your path. It, it's nothing special. It's nothing that happens only at the center and doesn't happen at home. As you proceed through your life, it's like a fluid line. But you're, you have to bring your mindfulness, your, your, the way you work with things with you. And the other thing is this um, understanding about uh, this quantum physics versus what we think is happening. So that's like um, uh, what they self uh, they say in Buddhism: no self, no uh, time. Time is different. There's no centralized self. We're interdependent. All the ideas that we learn in our study, they begin to come into your life so that they inform you also about how do you react to this moment. Okay, I'm going to read the second paragraph now. We say concentration, but to concentrate your mind on something is not the true purpose of Zen. So I think people think that, okay, I just need to learn how to concentrate and stay in the present moment. But he's saying that's not actually the real purpose. The true purpose is to see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. To see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. This is to put everything under control in its widest sense. I like that. Uh, you put things under control by letting go and believing in the background of perfect harmony. That's how you put it in control. That's the opposite right of what we usually do, which is narrow up and then try to manipulate what's going on so it turns out the way you think it's supposed to turn out. Um, this is to put everything under control in its widest sense. Zen practice is to open up our small mind. So concentrating is just an aid to help you realize big mind, or the mind that is everything. So my experience is, when I'm trying to live in the way that I've been talking, I feel very vulnerable. I feel kind of insecure. I feel like um, hmm, 
I feel pretty alive because I'm not trying to shape things the way I used to try to shape everything so that it would turn out perfectly. Now I'm I'm saying it will turn out perfectly because uh, it's in control of the larger mind. The huge mind is working this out. And I can let go, stop worrying. That's a big one for me. I don't know. Is there any other worry warts in the, the crowd? I'm quite a worrier. And now, when I see my worry arise, I try and interrupt it and fall back into the refuges. Get my big mind going, the big mind that sees that it's okay. Let go. And then concentrate on what's in front of me to do with not only concentration, but trying to understand what is actually happening. I think he said that. To see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. Isn't that beautiful? It, 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 it um, softens me up just to read it, that you could live like that, that you could. And we gather together in Sangha to help each other relax in that way, deeply relax into life, and let your life bloom the way it comes to you to bloom. Of course, we can shape our life, but the way we shape our life is how we react to the present moment with this understanding, right? That's how I feel like. For a long time, my practice was just like this. Now my practice is kind of, I got that a little bit, but now I have to have this part. You know, like what's actually happening? So that I can try and react wholesomely. And for Buddhists, that's how you build the future. You build the future by planting wholesome seeds, and I could say wholesome reactions, in the present moment, little, little, little. And I, thankfully, I say mustard seed, very small little seeds. I just have to pull up the best of myself to react in the present moment, to this, to this, to this, to this, to this. And the more I plant these wholesome seeds, I can relax that I'm going to, the benefit of those seeds will come back to me. But that's very different than controlling. Um, I just want to say, ending, um, something about perfection and imperfection, because that was also what I wanted to say. If I work my spiritual life try, directing myself towards perfection, I get more and more ego-centered. I get more and more self-absorbed. And I'm trying to interrupt my self-absorption these days. I'm trying to say that that's the problem. That's not the solution. So whenever I notice I'm very self-absorbed about wanting to be more perfect than I am, I try and interrupt that. And one way is to just embrace my imperfections. I can't believe I'm saying this. After so many years of self-helping myself to death, you know, trying to get rid of my imperfections. Now, and maybe it's age, too. You get into your 50s, and 
You're just an old dog. <laughs> you just know, I don't think that's ever going to go away. <laughs> that one. And especially since I've been trying for 30 years. You know, it's not like I'm 20 and only been trying for two. So now I just say, that is total self-absorption. Knock it off already. So what? that I'm not the perfect person. So what that I'm not a perfect Zen teacher? I have to say that a lot. It doesn't matter. That part is totally egocentric. And actually, my perfectionism is very compulsive. It has a bad energy to it, a bad feel to it. So when I notice that's arising, I try and interrupt it now. And I try to fall back in just embracing who I am and saying all those faults and imperfections are part of the story, part of the history. But they're not including my radiant being. They're actually trouncing on my radiant being. So these days I'm just trying to say bothness bothness, bothness, yes, and I think also making mistakes is good for us. Uh, Pema Chodron calls it ego insults. It's best if you make a mistake and someone notices. (laughs) That's the best for your practice. Because then they're going to say something and you have to absorb it, what happened, with humility and kindness, kindness for yourself, kindness for them, what's the largest picture, and don't dwell on it. Don't dwell, just keep on going, steadfast. Don't make me cry. I just, I, I just had a transmission ceremony, which is a big deal in Zen, and I came back to my Sangha and someone got up and said, um, Judith, what I admire you about you is that you have been so steadfast. No matter what happened, and a lot has happened, <laughs> I just kept going. One step, one step, one step. What should I do now? How can I express my Buddha nature now? Where should I be now? Where should I teach? Who wants me to teach? Nobody wants me to teach. I'll teach the birds. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I just, and I, I think that's really great. And it's not about ego aggrandizement. I just had that inspiration just today, actually. I was in the, Cent- uh, in the service, now that I'm the teacher, I'm the central figure in the service. So, central figure. Well, I'm a radiant being and I'm the central figure. <laughs> you know, and I saw my little ego just going right in there and saying, wow, you're more important than, you know, da 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 da. Thankfully, my mindfulness practice is strong enough that I caught where I was going. And I just said to myself, this is another tip, teach yourself the Dharma. So I just said to myself, you know, you and every person in this room is a radiant being. And we're all empty. We're all not there anyway. That's what they say. No self. So what are you, that's just a delusion. Do you see what I'm saying? And it was wonderful. I just dropped that whole thing, and I felt very fresh and happy and in the present moment. There was nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. So our imperfections are very important, and and they help our practice. And if you ignore your faults and imperfections, then a big shadow starts to arise. And it'll goose you anyway. And then you have to 
<laughs> deal with this. So, so I don't think that spiritual life is about perfection anymore. I embrace the imperfection, which is much kinder for myself and other people. And I steadfastly practice. And when I'm trying to practice, I'm going to see if I can repeat myself, is every present moment is the place of practice. I try and be in the present moment and understand what's happening so that I can have an appropriate response. And for me, that's all it is now. And that's hard enough, right? That's the tall order. But it's no building up of... I'm not building up projects. I'm not building up my ego. I'm, try, I'm trying not to. I'm not building up big, huge stories that I have to fulfill. Because I don't think that's, that's not a person of the way. That's a person of the mind or a person of the fantasy. The way is right before you. The, uh, the way as you walk that's, that's right before you okay so anyone want to make a comment or ask a question yes how does being in the present moment and understanding what's going on kind of what you're close with how does that fit with the don't know mind Uh, you're, well, the don't know mind and the knowing mind are very similar, but they're not the frontal lobe. So, do you know what the frontal the frontal lobe is? Part of our brain that I think is just spinning a dream constantly. You know, constantly evaluating and comparing and saying what you need and what you don't need. So that mind is neither a don't-know mind or the knowing mind. The knowing mind, for me, as I get clearer, the knowing mind is just there. As your concentration gets better and as you're not going off into fantasies, you're, I sometimes say it's the DNA mind. I mean, inside me is the mystery is a very knowing thing. Now, if I can just calm this part, that knowing will advise me. It's, that's called the knowing mind. But it's pretty close to don't know mind because don't know mind is this other mind quieted down. Does that make sense? Yes. I, um, I, I'm going to speak a little louder so folks can hear me. But I, I don't have a question so much as an observation. I wanted to tell you that I've heard you speak on CD. And so this is my first opportunity to see you speak. And I'm very impressed with how you speak. And I'm way impressed with how you maneuvered your gestures around this huge microphone without one. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to compliment you on your graceful arm hand movements. Mm. <laughs> I forgot to mention that Judith was a professional dancer for a number of years. <laughs> Well, I'm in my Zen clothes in a Vipassana place. So this is called Buddha's robe. This is a small version of Buddha's robe. And it's uh, made in a pattern of a rice field because it's about the Bodhisattva vow that you feed everybody, you nurture everything. And also, when the water goes in a rice field, it makes everything equal, right? So there were some metaphors about the rice field. Now, um, all Buddhists 
priests wear some kind of an okesa, the robe of the Buddha. In Theravadan, I think it's an orange robe, right? When there's a monk. And there's black robes and brown robes and different robes. Uh, in Zen, you get a small robe when you take the first lay ordination, when you say, I'd like to enter the Buddha family. And we're very fortunate. Katagiri Roshi's wife, Tomoe Katagiri, is a Japanese Zen sewing master. So she helps you, teaches you how to sew the robe. And then when you're a priest, if you do the go the ex, that extra that you want it to be your vocation, I also have a big um, one that wraps around your whole body. And then in Zen, being a Japanese hierarchical uh, thing, the color of your robes show what rank you are. And I just went up a rank. <laughs> so now I wear brown color. I've only been wearing brown color for two months. So I'm not quite used to it, but I'm getting used to it. <laughs> it's a lot about owning your own authority on different levels. So I'm working on that as a person who has not wanted to do that. That's one of my practices now. What was your previous color? Black. <laughs> All the, you know, Nobody's were black. Oh. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> we are all nobodies. We So did you get about being out of balance? So that's different. I got that too from Pema Chodron. She said, all these years the New Age people said grounded, grounded, grounded. And now she's teaching groundlessness, where you feel safe enough that you don't need to be grounded, grounded, grounded. Uh, and Dogen called that flowers in the sky that you can bloom in emptiness or in space without having to have a root. So that's pretty mature, right? Everybody likes a root. Any last questions or comments? On behalf of everybody, we can all do it together. Thank you so much, Judith, for coming.